You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is the beginning of the third section of this collection. And part three is entitled Hidden Aspects of Occult History. And this is lecture nine, entitled Materialism and Occultism, given in Dornach on October 10, 1915. You will have realized from recent lectures that contemporary materialism, the materialistic way of thinking, is not a consequence of arbitrary human free will, but of a certain historical necessity. Those who have some understanding of the spiritual process of human evolution know that human beings generally participated in spiritual life more in earlier centuries and millennia than they have during the last four or five hundred years. We know too with what widespread phenomena this is connected. At the very beginning of the evolutionary stage we call Earth, the inherited clairvoyance of the old Moon stage continued to work in human beings. We can envisage that in the earliest ages of earthly evolution this faculty of ancient clairvoyance was still very powerfully active. As a result, the range of humanity's spiritual vision in those times was wide and comprehensive. This ancient clairvoyance, then, gradually diminished to the point at which the great majority of human beings had lost the faculty of looking into the spiritual world. The mystery of Golgotha came to take its place, and yet a certain vestige of the old faculties remained. Evidence of this may be found, for example, in the knowledge of nature that existed among the alchemists until the 14th and 15th centuries, and even the 16th and 17th centuries. Such alchemical knowledge was very different in character from modern natural science. To some extent it was still able to rely, if not upon clear, imaginal clairvoyance, then at least upon vestiges of inspirations and intuitions. The alchemists, when they were honorable and did not seek egotistic gain, still worked to some degree with the old inspirations and intuitions, applying and elaborating them. While they were engaged in their outer activities, vestiges of the old clairvoyance still stirred within them, although no longer accompanied by any reliable knowledge. But the number of people in whom these vestiges of ancient clairvoyance survived decreased steadily. From all this you will realize that the nearer we come to our own period, the more we are faced with a decline of old soul forces and a growth of tendencies in the human soul toward observation of the outer material world. After slow, gradual preparation, this tendency reached its peak in the middle of the 19th century. Although it is not generally realized today, it will be clear to people in the future 
that the materialistic tendencies of the second half of the 19th century had peaked by the middle of the century. Materialistic tendencies had by then developed their greatest strength. Now the consequence of every tendency is that certain talents develop on its basis, and the really impressive greatness of the methods evolved by materialistic science stems from these tendencies of the soul to hold fast to the outer material sensory world. We must think of this human evolutionary phase as being accompanied by another phenomenon. If we carry ourselves back in imagination to the primeval ages of humanity's spiritual development, we find that humanity was in a comparatively fortunate position regarding spiritual knowledge. Most, in fact all, human beings then knew of the spiritual world through direct vision. Just as today we perceive minerals, plants and animals and are aware of tones and colors, so primeval humanity was aware of the spiritual world as a concrete reality. In those days, when full waking consciousness of the outer material world was dimmed in sleep or dream, there were really no human beings who could not have been connected with the dead, who had been near them during life. In the waking state one could interact with the living, during sleep or dream, with the dead. Teaching about the immortality of the soul would have been as superfluous then as it would be today to set out to prove that plants exist. Just imagine what would happen now if anyone set out to prove that plants exist. Exactly the same attitude would have been adopted in primeval times if anyone had thought it necessary to prove the soul also lives after death. Humanity gradually lost this faculty of living in communion with the spiritual world. Of course, there were always individuals who used every opportunity to develop, in quotes, seership. But then it became increasingly difficult to develop this seership. How then did ancient peoples develop a particular gift of seership? If we study the philosophy of Plato, or what exists of that of Heraclitus, we must realize, and this applies especially to the still earlier Greek philosophies, that they are altogether different from later philosophies. Ellipsis When we read Plato, we feel his philosophy takes hold of the whole person. When we come to Aristotle, however, the feeling is that we are dealing with an academic, learned philosophy. To understand Plato requires more insight than modern philosophers usually have at their command. For this reason there is a gulf between Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle is already a scholar in the modern sense. Plato is the last philosopher in the old Greek sense. He is a philosopher whose concepts are still imbued to some extent with life. As long as a philosophy of this kind exists, the link with the spiritual world is not broken, and indeed it continued for a long time, actually into the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages did not develop philosophy to further stages, but simply took over Aristotelian philosophy, and up to a certain time this was all to the good. Platonic philosophy was taken over in the same way. In those times when the aptitude for a certain kind of clairvoyance was still present, 
something important happened when people allowed philosophy to work upon them. Today, philosophy works only on the head, only on the thinking. The reason why so many people avoid philosophy is that they do not like thinking. They have no desire to study it. Ancient philosophy, when received into the human soul, was still able, because of its greater life-giving power, to quicken still existing gifts of seership. Platonic philosophy, indeed even Aristotelian philosophy, still had this effect. Being less abstract than the philosophies of modern times, they were still able to quicken faculties of seership inherent in the human soul. Thus, those very faculties that were otherwise sinking below the surface were quickened to life in people who devoted themselves to philosophy. That is how seers came into existence. But because what had now to be learned about the physical world, and this also applies to philosophy, was increasingly important only for the physical plane, humanity became more and more alienated from the remnants of the old clairvoyance. Human beings could no longer penetrate to the inner depths of existence, and it was increasingly difficult to become a seer. Nor will this again be possible until the new methods, indicated in the book titled How to Know Higher Worlds, are accepted as feasible. I have said that a period of materialism reached its peak, one could also say its deepest point, in the middle of the nineteenth century. Conditions will become more and more difficult. This is certain. Nevertheless, the threads of connection with earlier impulses in human evolution must not be broken. Bracket. Here Steiner drew a diagram on the blackboard showing seership in full flower, then dipping down below the horizon, reaching its nadir in the 19th century, then beginning to rise once again. Close bracket. In earlier epochs of humanity, seership was present in full flower. Then it declined, slowly vanishing until the lowest point was reached in the mid-nineteenth century. Following this, there was an ascent. Understanding the spiritual world, however, is not the same thing as seership. Just as, in relation to the world, science is not the same thing as mere sensory perception, so clairvoyance itself is a different matter from understanding what is seen. In the earliest times, people were satisfied, for the most part, with vision. They did not reach the point of thinking, to any great extent, about what was seen, for their seership sufficed. Then thinking, reflection about the spiritual world, came to the fore. In ancient times, humanity was satisfied with its visions. Thinking lay, as it were, in the subconscious regions of the soul. The ancient seers did not think, did not reflect. Everything came to them directly, through their vision. Thinking first began to affect seership about three or four thousand years before Christ. There was a golden age in the old Indian, Persian, and Egypto-Chaldean cultures. Then came ancient Greek culture, when a still youthful and fresh thinking was wedded with vision in the human soul. Thinking was not then the labored process it is in our day. Human beings moved between two poles. There were great all-embracing notions, 
and there was vision. We can see this, although already in a weaker form, in the seers who founded the Samothracian mysteries and who gave us the monumental teaching of the four gods, Axiros, Axiocursos, Axiocursa, and Cadmilos. In this great teaching originating on the island of Samothrace, lofty concepts were imparted to those who were initiated in the mysteries and were able to unite with these concepts the still surviving fruits of ancient seership. But then seership gradually sank below the threshold of consciousness, and to call it up from the depths of the soul became more and more difficult. It was, of course, possible to retain some of the concepts, even to further them, excuse me, even to develop them further. Thus a time finally came when there were initiates who were not necessarily seers. Mark well, initiates who were not necessarily seers. In different places there were then assemblies of these initiates. They simply adopted those parts of what was preserved from ancient times that could be affirmed to have been revealed by ancient seers. Or, where they could, they adopted what could be drawn forth from those still possessing the faculties of atavistic clairvoyance. Conviction came partly through historical traditions, partly through experiments. People convinced themselves that what their intellects thought was true. But as time went on, the number of individuals in these assemblies who were still able to see into the spiritual world steadily diminished, while the number who had theories about the spiritual world and expressed them in symbols and the like steadily increased. Then came the middle of the nineteenth century, when the materialistic tendencies reached their deepest point. Let us now consider the inevitable result of this. Naturally, there were those who knew that there is a spiritual world and also knew what it is to be found in the spiritual world. But they had never seen it. Indeed, the most outstanding scholars of the 19th century were people who, although they had seen nothing of the spiritual world, knew that it exists and could reflect about it. With the help of certain methods and a symbolism that had been preserved in ancient tradition, they could even discover new truths. Nothing special, for example, is to be gained by looking at a drawing of a human being. But if a human being is drawn with a lion's head or a bull's head, those who have learned how to interpret these things may glean a great deal. Such symbols were in frequent use. There were serious gatherings in which this language of symbols could be learned. I shall say no more about the matter than this, for the schools of initiation guarded these symbols very strictly, communicating them to no one who had not pledged to keep silent about them. However, to be a genuine knower, a person needed only to have mastered this symbolic language. Thus the situation in the middle of the nineteenth century was such that humankind in general, especially civilized humankind, possessed the faculty of spiritual vision deep in the subconsciousness, yet had materialistic tendencies. 
However, at the same time, there were a great many people who knew that there was a spiritual world, who knew that we are surrounded by a spiritual world, just as we are surrounded by air. These people then were burdened with a certain feeling of responsibility. They had no recourse to any actual faculties whereby the existence of a spiritual world could have been demonstrated. Yet they were not willing to see the world outside succumbing altogether to materialism. So a difficult situation confronted those who were initiated. They were faced with the question, Can we just continue to protect within our restricted circles the knowledge that has descended to us from ancient times and simply look on while the whole of humanity with its culture and philosophy sinks into materialism? Dare we just idly look on while this takes place? Especially those who were truly earnest about these things dared not do so. And so it came about that in the middle of the 19th century the words esotericist and exotericist, which were used by the initiates among themselves, acquired a meaning different from what it had previously been. The occultists divided into exotericists and esotericists. If, for purposes of analogy, expressions connected with modern parliaments are adopted, although naturally they were unsuitable here, the exotericists could be compared with left-wing parties and the esotericists with right-wing parties. The esotericists were those who wished to continue to abide firmly by the principle of allowing nothing of what was sacred, traditional knowledge, nothing that might enable thinking people to gain insight into the symbolic language, to reach the public. The esotericists were, so to speak, the conservative party among the occultists. The exotericists were and are those who wish to make public some part of the esoteric knowledge. Fundamentally, the exotericists were not different from the esotericists, except that the former were inclined to follow the promptings of their feeling of responsibility and make part of the esoteric knowledge public. At that time, there was widespread discussion of which the outside world knows nothing. It was particularly heated in the middle of the 19th century. Indeed, the clashes and discussions between esotericists and exotericists were far more heated than the arguments between the conservatives and liberals in modern parliaments. The esotericists took the stand that only those who had pledged themselves to strictest silence and were willing to belong to some particular society should be told anything about the spiritual world or have any knowledge of it communicated to them. The exotericists said, quote, But if this principle is followed, people who do not join some such society or league will sink into materialism. The exotericists then proposed a solution. I can tell you this. The way the exotericists proposed is the way we ourselves are taking. Their proposal was that a certain part of esoteric knowledge should be made public. Thus, we too have worked through the medium of popular writings to lead people gradually to knowledge of the spiritual worlds. However, in the middle of the 19th century, things had not yet reached the point 
at which anyone would have ventured to admit this was their conviction. In such circles there is of course no voting, and to say the following is to speak in metaphor. Nevertheless, it can be said that the esotericists won the day on the first, in quotes, ballot, and the exotericists were obliged to submit. The esotericist party was not resisted because of the good old precept of holding together. Not until more recent times has the point been reached when members of such occult associations are expelled or resign. Such things did not used to happen because people believed they had to hold together in brotherhood. Thus the exotericists could do nothing but submit, but their responsibility to the whole of humankind weighed upon them. They felt themselves, so to speak, to be guardians of evolution. This weighed upon them with the result that the first ballot, if I may use this word again, was actually not adhered to, and, once again, we use a word from ordinary parlance that must be taken metaphorically, a kind of compromise, in quotes, was reached. This led to the following. It was said, and the esotericists also admitted this, quote, humanity, in general, must come to realize that the world is not devoid of the spiritual. The world does not consist only of matter, nor is it subject only to purely material laws. Humanity must come to know that just as matter surrounds human beings, so also spirit surrounds them. Humanity must come to recognize that human beings are not just material, physical beings, but are beings of soul and spirit. The possibility of knowing this must be saved for humanity. On this agreement was reached, and that was the compromise. But the esotericists of the 19th century were not prepared to surrender esoteric knowledge. Therefore, a new and different method of communication had to be considered. How this came into being is a complicated story. The esotericists said, quote, We do not wish the esoteric knowledge to be made public, but we realize that the materialism of the age must be faced. Close quote. In a certain way, the esotericists were justified. They based themselves on a well-founded principle. Indeed, when we see the kind of attitude that is adopted today toward esoteric knowledge, we can understand and sympathize with those who said at that time that they would not hear of it being made public. We must realize, too, that history shows repeatedly that open communication of esoteric knowledge leads to calamity and that those who get hold of such knowledge are themselves the cause of obstacles and hindrances in the way of its propagation. And so, in the middle of the nineteenth century, this popularizing did not take place. An attempt was made, however, to deal with the materialistic tendencies of the age. It is difficult to express what has to be said, and I can only put it in words that were never actually uttered but nonetheless give a true picture. At that time the esotericists said, quote, What can be done about humanity? We may talk at length about the esoteric teaching, but people will simply laugh at us and at you. At most you will win over a few credulous people, a few credulous women, and you will not win over those who cling to the strictly scientific attitude, and you will be forced to reckon with the tendencies of the age. Close quote. 
The consequence was that endeavors were made to find a method by which attention could be drawn to the spiritual world. Ellipsis. And so it came about that mediumship was deliberately brought on the scene. In a sense, the mediums were the agents of those who wished by this means to convince people of the existence of a spiritual world, because through mediums people could see with physical eyes what originates in the spiritual world. The mediums produced phenomena that could be demonstrated on the physical plane. Mediumship was a means of demonstrating to humanity that there is a spiritual world. The exotericists and the esotericists had united in supporting mediumship in order to deal with the tendency of the times. Think only of people such as Zollner, Wallace, Duprell, Crooks, Buttlerow, Rochas, Oliver Lodge, Flammarion, Moselli, Schiaparelli, Okorowitz, James, and others. How did they become convinced of the existence of a spiritual world? It was because they had witnessed manifestations from the spiritual world. But everything that can be done by the spiritual world and by initiates must, to begin with, be in the nature of experiments in the world of human beings. The maturity of humanity must always be tested. This support of mediumship, of spiritualism, was therefore also, in a certain sense, an experiment. All that the exotericists and esotericists who had agreed to the compromise could say was, quote, what will come of it remains to be seen, close quote, what did, in fact, come of it. Most of the mediums gave accounts of a world in which the dead are living. Just read the literature on the subject. For those who were initiated, the result was distressing in the utmost degree, the very worst it could have, hap- it could have been. Two things could have happened. Mediums were used and made certain communications. They were able to relate what they communicated only to the ordinary environment, in whose material elements, of course, spirit is present. It was expected that the mediums would bring to light all kinds of hidden laws of nature, hidden laws of elemental nature. What actually happened, however, was inevitable. The human being, as we know, consists of a physical body, an etheric body, an astral body, and the capital I. From the time of sleep, going from the time of going to sleep to waking, therefore, the real person is in the I and astral body. At the same time, he or she is in the realm of the dead. The medium sitting there, however, is not an I and an astral body. Eye consciousness and astral consciousness have been suppressed. As a result, the physical and etheric bodies become particularly active. In this condition, the medium may come into contact with a hypnotist or an inspirer, that is to say, with some other human being. Another human being's capital I, or even the environment, can then have an effect upon the medium. It is impossible for mediums to enter the realm of the dead, because the parts of their being that belong to that realm have been made inoperative. The mediums therefore make a great mistake when they gave accounts allegedly of the realm of the dead. Thus it was obvious that this experiment had achieved nothing 
except to promulgate a great fallacy. One fine day it had to be admitted that a path had been followed that was leading humanity into a fallacy, into purely luciferic teachings, bound up with purely aramonic observations. A great fallacy, from which nothing good could result, had been spread abroad. This was realized as time went on. You see now how an attempt was made with spiritualism to deal with the materialistic tendencies of the age and to bring home to human consciousness that there is a spiritual world around us. This path led to a fallacy as we have heard, at least in the beginning. But you can see from this how necessary it is to take the other path, namely actually to begin to make public part of the esoteric knowledge. This is the path that must be taken, even if it brings one calamity after another. The very fact that we pursue spiritual science is, so to speak, an acknowledgement of the need to carry into effect the principle of the exotericists in the middle of the 19th century. In fact, the aim of the, spirit, of the spiritual science is nothing other than to carry this principle into effect, to carry it into effect honorably and sincerely. Ellipsis, end of lecture 9.